Greetings race community, Brent coming in live with today's guest, Rodney Kirsch, who this Susie is a senior vice president at Grenzebach Clear and Associates and senior vice president emeritus development and alumni relations, Penn State University. Welcome, Rod. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, we have been uh, playing a bit of email and calendar tag since episode 93 when our mutual colleague, Mark Llewellyn, uh, currently Senior Vice President at University of Virginia, uh, was raving about you. And so we figured we should uh, see what all the hype is about and get you on the episode <laughs> ourselves. So here we are, Rob. Thanks for joining us. And as you might be aware, one of my favorite, um, you know, first of all, to everybody listening, Rod has had a uh, uh, unparalleled career uh, leading advancement organizations. He knows everybody. He has countless stories that we won't even be able to get into today, but we'll get into some of them. Um, but before all of that stuff happened, Rod had to go to college himself. And so, Rod, I would love for you to take me back to junior, senior year of high school. Who was that guy and what led him to the University of North Dakota? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I was blessed that I, I had uh, my parents were not college educated. So I was first generation, uh, but they had um, a value for education beyond probably anything else. So, so education was very much a part of who we were. My father was on the school board for many years. Um, so there was no question really that I was going to go to college. And the question was just where and what was I going to do? I, I, we didn't have enough money uh, for me to go anywhere out of state. So there were really two options. Uh, and uh, I chose the one that was the University of North Dakota, uh, mainly because I was going to I was going to be an English major. I kind of pretty much determined that. Uh, loved literature, loved writing. Uh, and uh, at UND, they required English majors to have a minor in a foreign language. And I thought that was a little bit higher hurdle uh, than the other institution I was looking at. And so that's how I ended up there. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, in my second year there as a sophomore, I joined, uh, I joined a fraternity which uh, became a really influential part of what uh, my college career, but also my life thereafter in terms of kind of the uh, doors that opened and so forth. So, Well, tell me more about that. Also, uh, what was the language? The language was German. So, uh, so I'm of German heritage and background. And uh, there was a little bit of German spoken in my home, mainly when my parents didn't want me to know what they were talking about. Uh, they could both speak German. So, uh, so that was, yeah, that was it. Um, and that was a pretty common thing uh, where I grew up was uh, for people to either study German if they didn't know it or speak German uh, if they had that kind of ancestry. And uh, any German you want to dust off for our listeners today? <laughs> Guten Tag. Wie geht es Ihnen? That All right. Works today. for me. How are you today, Brent? Works for me. Works for me. So, uh, tell me more about the fraternity experience and just by way of, you know, the intersections I referenced before we went live, fellow first gen student and uh, fraternity uh, leadership was, uh, was was really a formative part of my uh, college experience in addition to my athletic um, endeavors as well. And so I'd love to know more about what aspects of that fraternity um, were, were important in the college um, experience, but ultimately, um, is that where you sort of first got intersection with the alumni and, and fundraising world? 
Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I eventually became the alumni relations chair. Uh, and so that was my final kind of job uh, in the fraternity uh, where I actually took care of the alumni newsletter and did some things like that. Uh, but the, you know, the best part of it is that I was, uh, I just happened to be probably very fortunate to end up uh, in a chapter that had a lot of really bright guys, a lot of diverse uh, backgrounds uh, in terms of academic disciplines and so forth. There were like 20 guys in my pledge class and we had a, our first semester, we had a 3.4 grade point average. And I think seven of us had straight 4.0s. So, uh, so these are a bunch of really bright guys, you know, future doctors, engineers, attorneys, and so forth. Um, so uh, it was it was great to to be around these guys, to to be challenged by them, to learn from them, to you know, when I was younger, to look up to them, and and so forth. And so that's what's really led me then to my first job to to work for my college fraternity, and that's really where I got to have some appreciation and understanding for, you know, uh, volunteerism, uh, governing boards, uh, fundraising, and, and the like was really uh, when I uh, worked for Delta Upsilon International Fraternity. Well, as you know, the movie Animal House was released your senior year of college, and it sounds like you had a very different experience than was portrayed <laughs> in the film. Yeah, I, I may have attended a record number of toga parties uh, when I uh, traveled my first year uh, and even got to the University of Oregon where Animal House was was filmed. Uh, I could say that I mean, it's, it's, it's a very funny movie, probably a little bit out of date in this uh, era. Uh, and fortunately, my house wasn't quite as wild uh, as as the one portrayed in uh, in the movie. Uh, but uh, but uh, we did have a lot of fun, as I recall. And uh, uh, but but so for those two years, though, out of college, you basically joined as a full time employee of the national uh, fraternity, and then were essentially campus to campus as as a liaison. Yeah, so I did that work for two years, and over the two years, uh, visited about eighty different college campuses. So I really got to see wow. America. I mean, what's that? I was going to say, like, so as a you know fellow first gen uh, student who had not traveled very much by the time I went to college, I imagine you hadn't traveled all that much, um, given what you described. Going uh, and seeing, I mean, my family and I just did an RV trip during the pandemic. We did 34 states in 10 months. It sounds like that oh, cool. was sort of, uh, you know, aligned with your travel uh, during that period. I mean, 80 campuses. Uh, tell me some of the highlights and the lowlights, because there had to be some of those, too. Well, I mean, you could tell kind of the moment you walked into a chapter house if it was a good chapter or, or, or not. Uh, and uh, but um, it was. Uh, it was a perfect job right out of school uh, for doing, I mean, I really did get to see, you know, this country and Canada because we had Canadian uh, chapters as well. Uh, it had to deal with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, interesting, diverse situations. Um, it was a very autonomous job because we literally, uh, those of us who did this work, packed up our suitcase at the end of August when uh, semester started and came back to our headquarters uh, the second week in December. So we literally lived out of our suitcase, um, had to make all of our own travel arrangements, um, uh, and and uh, really had to you know work ourselves out of a fix if we got into one. Uh, had to be pretty resilient, um, and sometimes had to stand up in front of a group of guys that were probably no more than two or three years younger than me, and uh, and deliver some 
some hard news from time to time. Uh, and, uh, and that all kind of served me well many years later when, uh, when I was managing a team of obviously adults, uh, uh, you know, uh, managing a team and needing to uh, take a leadership role and convey tough news sometimes. Rod, I didn't know we'd spend this much time on this part of your career, but I'm finding it very interesting. And when you, I mean, to do that job a couple years out of college or a year out of college, 80 campuses, live out of a suitcase without a cell phone, without an email address, no internet access. Like literally, how did you stay in touch and organized during that period? Well, it made it even more more self-sufficient, you know, because we, no, we didn't. I mean, technology was, it was a, a dinosaur. It was an ice age or two ago. So um, I had just one call in uh, every week at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. Still remember the date, the day and the time. I'd call into headquarters and had a 30-minute uh, chat with my boss. Uh, and that's about the only we, you know, there, there, there was no email or you know, nothing of that nature. So, so we would file reports. Uh, we had to find a typewriter every place I went either undergraduate lent me one or sometimes I had to go to the library. I mean, so there are all kinds of, you know, things, but, you know, it was just part of the, you know, part of being, I, I guess, self-sufficient and, uh, and just doing what needed to be done. So, yeah. Sounds like you were doing remote work before it was cool. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you could say that. Yeah. So what led you to pursue the master's program at the University of Indiana? Tell me about that. Well, my my I, I had a wonderful first boss in life, a guy by the name of Bill Butler. So I, I've been really blessed with um, amazing mentors throughout my career. Uh, so the very first one was was a guy by the name of Bill Butler. So he was the executive director of the fraternity. He 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 really encouraged me to go on to to get a, a degree. He he always thought I should become a college president, and I really did not have interest in. Uh, being uh, in a classroom and, and doing all that uh, for like six years to get a doctoral degree and so forth. And so anyway, I, he, uh, he really encouraged me to go to Indiana University. It had a great student affairs program. Um, I was actually initially interested in admissions work. And there are a lot of, when you think about it, there's a lot of similarities between an admissions professional and an advancement professional in terms of, 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 of the work. Um, but then I got, uh, and again, via through the fraternity, I, I got uh, an assistantship at the Alumni Association at IU. Uh, and uh, and I, I lived the first uh, year of my graduate uh, program in the DU house in Bloomington, Indiana. So I was a graduate advisor. Um, so between those two gigs, I really didn't have any, you know, my degree was paid for. Uh, and so, uh, so that was, that was really useful. Uh, and, and, and again, gave me an opportunity to, to, to learn about this whole world of alumni relations and, and ultimately, uh, fundraising. I had a, uh, I had an internship, uh, my second year at the college of arts and sciences where a gentleman by the name of Gene Temple, those who follow, uh, the, the, the academic side, let's say of, of philanthropy with no Gene's name, Gene was the founding Dean of the Lewis School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. Uh, but at that time he was a director of development. The first, actually the first constituent development officer that Indiana University ever had, that was in 1981. Uh, so, uh, uh, so I, and Gene became another really great mentor for me and we, he and I are still in touch with each other 40 some years later. 
And at what point with the interest in student affairs or enrollment, for example, um, did you start to pursue the advancement work and ultimately what led you to Drake? Um, so this actually turned out to be uh, another connection that I learned about in the Alumni Association office. So, so the gentleman by the name of Kent Dove, who was the vice president for institutional advancement uh, at Drake University. And, um, and, you know, I just started applying for all kinds of advancement positions and roles. And I was, you know, so I had two years of work experience at the fraternity, two years in graduate school. And I started just everything. And, and, and in those days, again, there was, you know, no internet and so forth. So I would spend uh, evenings typing up letters on a typewriter and sending them off to the, through the post office to various jobs. Now, when I look back, I think, how, how silly, because I would guess about 75% of those things I applied to, I had no qualifications to, really, uh, to, to get a position. Uh, but I ended up at Drake. Uh, Kent, uh, Kent was an Indiana graduate, actually. And so he, I think that caught his attention that I also was soon to be an IU grad with my master's degree. Uh, we had an interview and we hit it off. And uh, I think he offered me the whopping uh, starting salary of uh, 15,000. And I said, can you go up another thousand, Kent? And uh, so I started out with a $16,000 salary in uh, 1982 as the, I think it was the assistant director of annual giving and assistant director of alumni relations. So I, I did uh, a phone program, a very un unsophisticated phone program, I might add, uh, compared to these days. And then I, I started an alumni chapter uh, program when I was at Drake for, for those three years. So by the time your episode is published, we will all have also a, a published an episode with Eileen Savage. I don't know if you ever oh. crossed paths with oh, Eileen, yeah, but Eileen, would, would anybody that's been listening to the show will know that Eileen was just talking about Kent Dove and his books. And so he kind of went down that whole path, but it's just another reminder of how much this sector, um, you know, is truly relationship-based, but, but how much uh, everybody knows everybody. And so yeah, um, just thought you might appreciate knowing that. And, and, and I'd love to know more about just those, those early years. I mean, you're talking about, you know, applying for jobs with typewriters. Um, we're, we're, you know, trying to run a, an annual fund program in the mid 80s. What does that entail? I mean, what did you really do? Um, and, uh, you know, any memories from those early days that made you think, hey, maybe I could do this for a long time? Well, I mean, it, uh, Part of this work, as you know, part, part of it is uh, part of it is uh, relational uh, and a big piece of it. And I learned a lot about that from people along the way about developing relationships. But part of it is is very strategic and and uh, and and uh, metrics driven and so forth, and much more so than it was 40 years ago. So I, I kind of enjoyed both parts of it, the creative part of it you know, that, that it entailed. And I suppose that was kind of falls back to my English major days and, and, and so forth. But, um, but what I really learned from Kent, Kent was one of the best strategists I was ever around uh, in terms of, of this work. And eventually I met a man by the name of Kurt Simic when I went to Berkeley and Kurt was uh, no one better in building uh, relationships uh, than, than, than Kurt in, in, in this business. So those, those early days were though, I mean, running an annual giving program now because we didn't have any of the technology uh, at that time. It was a lot of hard work um, and it was 
fairly inefficient, actually, compared to how we do things now. Uh, but to this day, uh, and, and when I began to manage people and then manage an entire program, I will never regret having done kind of that slave labor as, uh, you know, working uh, in a annual giving program because I really appreciate what it takes and how important it is to the the fundamental process of fundraising uh, and the in the cycles that donors go through. You know, most of our mega donors started out with a gift of ten dollars or twenty five dollars. Uh, you know, everyone I think knows the famous you know Michael Bloomberg's first gift to. Johns Hopkins was five dollars, you know, the year he graduated. So, so I, I really learned the importance of, of building a pipeline, building a base, uh, what that all meant. Can I ask, when you think about all the technology change that has happened, um, what hasn't changed? I mean, what do you think is the same today about running an annual fund, if anything, um, mm -hmm. as it was uh, then? I, I'm, I'm not so well. You know, we we try to as best we could you know, do segmentation and so forth. But again, there were there were no analytics at that time as we have sophistication about it now. Uh, and so so that has changed a lot. Um, the thing that hasn't changed is is I think how we, I mean, we're better at doing messaging now, but even then, even though the delivery or the channels that we were using were, were not as sophisticated, we still had to think about what we were uh, saying to people and, and uh, what's the case in terms of what we were asking them to do uh, in, in terms of supporting an institution and so forth. Um, Kent and I had a marvelous two hour conversation you know, not too long before Kent passed away. And we talked a little bit about this and how, you know, um, uh, well, a lot of the things now have changed from a standpoint of technology and the metrics and analytics, the, the one thing that I don't think will ever change is, is the relationship piece of our work. And so uh, understanding people's motivations, understanding their values, understanding uh, you know, how we can talk to them about the impact that donors can make with their philanthropy. I mean, that, that has not changed. And because so much of that is you know, understanding human nature itself, um, that will never change. And, and Kent and I used to joke a little bit about as, as sophisticated as we get about all these things, uh, um, you know, a, a computer, uh, a telephone is never going to ask somebody for, you know, a gift of a million dollars or $10 million or whatever. It, it still comes down to, you know, can you do this work with, you know, and relate to people at, at, at their level and understand them. I think that's a great point. And when you think about um, even in the take away the philanthropy world, but when you think about the world of commerce more broadly, um, there is absolutely a sliding scale of the importance of human to human connection and price point, right? So if you think about um, in, in the commercial world, as easy as it's gotten to um, pay with your phone or to quickly, uh, you know, transact, at a certain price point, it doesn't matter how easy it is to do those things or how good the website is. There is a thres threshold at which people want to talk to people and they want to be able to have questions answered, concerns, you know, additional perspective and context. Um, and that applies in the commercial sector where, you know, price points generally, there aren't a lot of things that are people that people are buying for more than five or certainly. Um, six figures. You then go to the philanthropy world where uh, you literally get to nine figures um, in some cases 
Um, and I think it, it is highly likely that as much technology innovation happens, and obviously I'm betting my career on that continuing to happen, it is not going to replace the human to human element that is going to drive the vast majority of philanthropic revenue. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, and, and regardless of the communication channel and so forth, the, um, one of the really important things that, that all of us need to appreciate is that probably the, the most important thing that we do in our work, uh, uh, and it revolves around the value of trust. You know, we don't have someone's trust if we don't have a benefactor's trust in who we are, what our institution stands for, that we're going to do the right thing, what the donor wants and honor donor intent. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be successful in this work. So we've got to be able to uh, be to build genuine trust uh, with people uh, because that's in reality, other than people having hopefully a lot of joy from their philanthropy. Trust is about the only thing we can promise back, uh, you know, in, in, in that sense. So, um, so that's a very important, and that, you know, that transcends whatever the communication channel is. Um, well said. Um, if we hadn't talked about your couple of year stint traveling to 80 cam campuses and Canada, I would have been more confused by your next career stop, which was to go from Drake University to UC Berkeley. And I would have asked you about the culture shock of your sheltered Midwestern upbringing and what that was like. But now I know you went to more toga parties than anybody. So it probably wasn't as big of a, uh, of a shock. Uh, well, it, you know, it, it, it's still, I mean, um, I mean, Drake, I'm actually doing some consulting work right now at Drake and, and Drake was such a, a marvelous place for me to get started. And, and, uh, um, and, and I, I still have, in fact, I was just back there last week. Uh, saw some people that I know from from those days, but um, but Berkeley was really another step up in terms of the magnitude of the institution, complexity of it, um, the, the the prowess of 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 what Cal, as most people would know it, uh, uh, would refer to it as Cal C A L as, uh, and. Uh, um, uh, there were just a lot of really bright, intelligent people running around that place that really had some, were making some real big impact or were, were, were bound to. Um, I was a little worried when I went there about, because I knew I'd be dealing probably in terms of the, the, the kind of the heart of the philanthropic support that I was going to be doing with major gift work. I'd be dealing with people who had graduated from there in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, well before, you know, the free speech movement and everything that Berkeley then became known for and, and in terms of the, the unrest in the late 60s. But, uh, but these people uh, love this institution, those that graduated uh, before the unrest in the, 60, in the late 60s, love the place and uh, as, as much as those that graduated, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And so it, it, one of the, it really taught me about how, how people get to be kind of the DNA of a place really gets to be a part of somebody that cares about the university, that cares about their alma mater. And so, uh, so we had a market, these are the days when uh, campaigns then, for example, that campaign was $320 million and then it increased to 400 million. And I mean, those are, uh, I mean, there's a lot of places now that, that that's that's kind of a good year, uh, not a you know a six-year campaign total. That's just one single good year to to do three or four hundred million dollars. So the magnitudes of things are very different. 
uh, but the processes, the principles are all the same. And, and, and Cal was fairly, you know, I think Kurt would say, Kurt Simic was the vice chancellor there. That's how I met Kurt. Kurt would say that, um, you know, that, uh, that the program, he was one of the things I think he did there was to build some professionalism into the fundraising and advancement program at, at, at UC Berkeley. As you think about your time in that role, my understanding is that was a little bit more of the um, road warrior frontline gift officer producer role. Is that right? right. Exactly. Yep. Any memorable visits or, uh, I don't know, positive outcomes or negative outcomes that, that you reflect on? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not easy, you know, picking up the phone and trying to get an appointment to do cold calls and so forth. And uh and I remember reading shortly before I went there, Lee Iacocca, many people, you know, won't remember Iacocca, but he was he was chairman of Chrysler Motor Company and brought it out of bankruptcy and became he he then chaired the um the Statue of Liberty uh, restoration project and was you know by any respects a great American. But in his book, in the first or second chapter, he talks about when he was uh, at Chrysler as a young squirt, young kid, how he would literally, and he had to go out and make calls, make sales calls. How he would literally write down on paper what he was going to say in his phone conversations, you know. So I kind of reflected on that. I thought, well, if, if Lee Iacocca went through that stage in his career about being a little intimidated to call up someone and say, you know, I'd like to come and see you to talk to you about, you know, in this case, UC Berkeley. I thought, okay, so not not so bad if I have a little bit of nervousness and anxiety about it. But I found that I, I love the work. I, I love getting to meet people, uh, uh, understanding who they were. I still have my first six-figure gift came from an elderly woman. Uh, Mary Ann Herberger was her name. Uh, she was a, a, a Cal graduate uh, from probably the, the, the 20s or something like that, 20s or 30s. I mean, she's elderly and uh, still remember going to visit with her, you know, and uh, and kind of the joy that she had that somebody from the university had come to see her. She was in a retirement center in Santa Barbara. And, uh, you know, I asked her if she'd consider a gift and she she pro offered one hundred thousand dollars and 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 uh, still have that pledge form. Actually, it's kind of one of the kind of it's for me, it kind of says a lot about kind of where I started. Uh, but that was fun. And then she, like many people, she just loved, um, you know, reminiscing about the place. And, you know, I kept that relationship going. She gave some more gifts uh, even after that first one, you know, so. And that's a common, I think, arc that we hear, Rod, is, um, you know, that dynamic of cold calling, right? And, you know, whether it's the call center uh, in your annual fund days where you're literally cold calling or you're then a frontline officer, you know, using that persistence to try to secure a meeting and you, and you almost feel bad about it. But then you have conversations like the one you just shared. And it just seems like in every leader's career that we've, that we've uh, covered on this, this podcast, um, something, a, a switch flips at some point where it's, you stop feeling bad about reaching out to somebody and you start feeling proud or excited, or even if you get a clear no, instead of you feeling bad about that, you feel good that at least now you know that there's a clear no, and you can go prioritize your time elsewhere, or you find out why there's a clear no, 
and you see if you can make it right if it's not too far gone. And I'm just curious for you know, is that is that what you've seen not just in your own career, but no, really, other folks that you've led? Yeah, Brent, real, really excellent points. I mean, that that is that is indeed as you just described it, in, in, indeed the case. Uh, and uh, I, I I think uh, you know one one of the things we all learn is you know there are possibly more no's than yeses in in, in terms of what we do. Um, but it's it's really um, to get used to that uh, and to be able to understand. And then the, the wins are they're not so much become wins anymore as just the building and connecting people with an institution that that they care about. Uh, and so um, so those really kind of, you know, uh, keep you in the game and so forth. Uh, um, Kent Dove used to, you know, he, he Kent used to have all these little expressions typed in little three by five cards that he'd keep in his briefcase. And, and one of them was, I, you know, uh, I, uh, I'd rather have you make uh, errors of commission than errors of omission. And Kent had a very active, you know, a pro, a proactive um part of his, I think, philosophy. So I learned right away that, you know, they're going to be, you know, you will be successful in this work if indeed you are out there uh, uh, attempting and sometimes you're going to try and fail and so forth. The other thing that I learned from, and this was, I was fortunate enough to, to meet and know Hank Rosso. Now, some of your viewers will not know who Hank is. It's R-O-S-S-O. Hank uh, created uh, the fundraising school, which became, uh, which he essentially gifted to Indiana University to the Center of Philanthropy. This was well before the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at, at Indiana University. But uh, Hank, uh, Hank had uh, an important philosophy in that um, you should never ever apologize for asking someone for uh, uh, for an organization uh, to benefit uh, some entity that you feel proud about and that deserves support. So, um, so, and it's a, I think it's a really important thing for people entering this work to to, to say. And I oftentimes talk about it because when we ask people for a gift, they'll sometimes, you know. That moment of silence after Bren, I ask you to consider a gift of a half a million dollars to do something, uh, is one of the more awkward moments people usually have uh, in this work. Um, not everybody has born with the DNA chip that makes that an easy thing to do. Um, but one of the tendency is to always say, "Well, Brent, I, I know that's a lot of money," or even worse, to say. Brent, um, you know, if that's too much, maybe you could do a hundred thousand. Uh, and so, you know, we we ought to never apologize for asking. Uh, and I think Hank would say something like, "Never, never clothe and ask in a blanket of apology." Uh, which, uh, in in his vernacular, that's how he described that. So I think it's an important thing to think about, and it. And it bleeds into really the fact of the, the work that we do um, is important. Uh, it changes lives, uh, and 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 it has just the material uh, impact on on the organizations that we care about and work for. So there's no reason to apologize for asking someone uh, to 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 make a, a stretch gift. It sounds like not only not apologize, but also be comfortable. Get comfortable with that uncomfortable moment after the ask, um, knowing that they might be thinking, I thought he was gonna ask for a million. 
not, I wish he would have asked for a hundred thousand. It could go both ways. Right. Um, and I'm sure you have instances now I might want to ask you, do you have instances where you have asked for too much money in hindsight or that you have not asked enough? And how do you think about calibrating the ask around a specific number, a range, you know, how do you kind of go from, well, it could be a hundred thousand or a million or somewhere in between, but I've got to put a figure in front of somebody. Well, you know, you do, you try to do good homework on on, on all that and you're never quite certain. Um, I think the important thing is, is that you're asking permission to have a gift conversation uh, with somebody so it doesn't come out of the blue. Uh, but why I, you know, we actually do a lot of training around this. And so there's a lot of ways, everything from having good research to having insight from others about this person to understanding what, what range of gifts a person may have made in the past to maybe having some sense about what their gift capacity and wealth is. I mean, there's, there's a, a, a lot of things that are probably tangible, but then there's also those things that, you know, you try to inspire people, you try to, um, uh, have people know others and get to know others who have been you know great benefactors and and have great benefactors who are already quote in the fold uh to tell their stories to people that you're trying to approach for a gift and so um i could tell you lots of stories about going on on gift conversation calls we're bringing a volunteer along who who actually the volunteer i had a wonderful volunteer couple of um uh, a gentleman who shared the first campaign I did at Penn State, and he and his wife, his wife was chaired one of our, our college uh, campaign committees in, in, a, in her uh, academic college. They did a marvelous job of telling why they had made this really very large stretch gift for them. Um, and that is all it took uh, to convince this other couple that they needed to stretch as well. Uh, you know, so I'm a huge, huge believer in volunteer engagement and, and getting volunteers to, to, to help us at, in any way that they feel comfortable. Well, in your 26 years at Penn State, which uh, not a lot of people cross that 25-year mark in this sector, uh, Rod, in the 26 years at Penn State, um, what are some of the memories that, that stand out, um, whether it's with those specific volunteers or key milestones. I mean, because look, you, you, you arrived in the mid nineties, probably, I don't know if on your first day there, you got an email address. It was 1996. So probably a, a year early. Um, but you know, you left by, uh, well, technically you're emeritus, so you have never left. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just curious when you think about the, the world of philanthropy and advancement in, you know, 1996 compared to uh, you know, 2016, for example, when, when your full-time role concluded, um, I'm curious what reflections you have. Yeah, you know, um, oh, there's so, so, so many and, and, and almost all of them good. You know, we, we, we lived through a really tough time at Penn State uh, when we um, threw a, a scandal and a crisis, but, but for the most part, uh, what wonderful memories. Um, and I think one of the things I really learned um, uh, particularly working with, with, with large donors and key volunteers uh, was, was the importance of stewardship. Um, we had quite a number of repeat donors, uh, people, people who, um, this couple I was just explaining to you, they, they made a $5 million gift as a campaign uh, um, chair couple, so to speak. 
And uh, that was a large gift for them at that point in their lives. And since then, they've given much, much more uh, to, to Penn State. Uh, but uh, I think we did really great stewardship. And there are quite a number of people. Uh, the largest donor I worked with at the time, a uh, couple that made a gift to endow the Honors College at Penn State, uh, Bill and Joan Schreier by name, about uh, nine, eight or nine years after the first large gift, they made a second large gift. Uh, and uh, so in all of these, there's a stewardship story behind them and multiple relationships the two back to the institution. So this idea that, you know, this, this donor or this prospect is mine and mine only, really bad idea <laughs> you know uh what uh what we find when we kind of do the, the the study of of donors who give a million dollars or more is the vast majority of them have multiple relationships at our institutions uh and they give to multiple places within the institution uh and and so so uh, having multiple relationships as long as they're coordinated is really what you want to do what you want to have uh, and, and is really a good thing. Um, yeah, so I learned that. I learned, I think I learned the importance of, of institutional leadership. I, I, I worked for, um, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed my relationship with the president who had hired me for 16 years. We worked together. Uh, we had a, a, a lot of fun. We worked really hard, uh, but, um, but he was uh, really a strong fundraising president. So I learned the importance of, of you know, presidential leadership and fundraising and how how important that can be. Um, I learned the importance of a great staff and, and taking care of a great staff and, and trying to, you know, my role as a vice president, while I did a lot of principal gift fundraising, you know, my, my role, probably a principal role was trying to create an environment and give uh, my, my team the tools so that all of them could be successful. So, uh, so that's probably, you know, I could reminisce a lot about some of the really nice gifts we got. Probably more important and less visible, I imagine, is some of the things I tried to do behind the scenes or the bullets you take as a vice president that no one really knows you're taking and so forth um, to, to really make, uh, make the work easier and more successful for the, the people that are on your advancement team. Uh, so I so I hope I was able to do that and uh, and that people, uh, you, know, uh, you know, that work for me can go away and say, you know, I, I enjoy working for Rod because he, you know, it was fun to be around and, and uh, you know, he he gave us the leadership we needed at certain points in time. Rod, can I ask you in that senior vice president role, I, I do think it's unique in the philanthropy sector where um, oftentimes in the commercial sales world, the higher up you move, the less direct client relationship management work you do. And it's more about recruiting, training, and leading a team. And in fact, there is a point at which if you have any direct client relationships, your board or people might start to question, why is that the case? Yet in this world of philanthropy, it is so common for senior vice presidents to not only have uh, you know, a portfolio or manage relationships, if, if you will, but have some of the most important relationships. And I'm always intrigued and a little bit confused about why that is the case, given that you have all the other institutional stuff to deal with, the bullets to take, the, you know, issues to deal with. And it's your job to help create a great experience for some of the most, um, 
you know, just highest potential from a capacity perspective, donor relationships. Does that make sense? Yeah, it 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 does, and it's in a similar fashion. We kind of take really good major gift fundraisers, and we make them associate vice presidents. We turn them into managers, and and then they don't have as much time to 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 be that great fundraiser and so forth. So uh, I don't know. I you know, Penn State was a place where I think um, there was a, a bit of a tradition before I got there that if you were going to talk about major philanthropy, you were usually ending up talking to the president and or the vice president for development. And so, I mean, so that was part of kind of a, a bit of the culture of the place. But um, but I knew probably ultimately once I had a team built and we got that first campaign organized and, and on the road, I, I, I knew that, um, you know, one of my main responsibilities was actually going to be at a, you know, principal giving level. So, so I probably had an active portfolio of 65 or 70, you know, pretty, pretty good prospects uh, and, 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 and work with them. The, the other point that I think you, you, you just cannot overlook uh, as a vice president is that you, you are a role model, like it or not, to everybody else that, that works with you. Um, and if they don't see you out doing the work that you're asking them to do, if they don't see you out making calls and, and, and putting together proposals and trying to close gifts and so forth, you know, you, you, you don't nearly have a, a strong case to, to kind of keep compelling them to do that work. So I kind of always took the approach that I, you know, I'm not going to ask anybody to anybody to do something that I would uh, want to do myself or have done myself, you know. So so I think yeah. being that role model is really, uh, you know, very important. You know, I think, I mean, leading by example matters, right? And I think of the balance of, how much leading by example, and I'm sure there's some senior vice presidents that probably loves that fundraising work so much. It's hard to not do it, um, and you know, then others that maybe uh, give up too much of that. And, and I'm sure striking the balance is is important. Um, can I just ask, uh, you know, when, when you think about your time there, you had a bunch of people, uh, you know, grow up with you um, during that time period as professionals. You've mentioned Dave Lee. We, Lee, we talked about Mark Llewellyn, uh, Eloise Bryce, um, Pam Buell. I mean, there are people that you've had the opportunity to help um, grow, uh, you know, and coach. And, and now they're uh, obviously uh, amazing leaders in their own right. But what, what's it like kind of having that, uh, you know, alumni community, if you will, uh, as it relates to your, your resume? Well, it's still fun. And all those people you mentioned, I, I still am in contact with. And, you know, they reach out every once in a while to me. And, and so, so, I mean, that's, you just develop some of those personal relationships. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I just see it in, to some extent as kind of paying it forward or paying it backwards. I don't know what the, the right way to put it. But, you know, I had some people that, you know, like Kent Dove and Kurt Simic and Gene Temple and there are a few others that, that really took an interest in me and my career when I was young. Uh, and, uh, and so, I mean, it's, a, it's a way to kind of give back to the profession. Uh, I still enjoy doing things like that. I'm on the, I've been recruited back to come on to the big 10 fundraisers Institute again, after having done it for 15 years, they, they thought they needed some old consultant with gray hair to, to come back on. And so I, so I think you have, you know, some responsibility to do some things like that. And I, and I certainly, you know, try to try to do that probably have not done nearly enough of it to be honest with you but um but yeah it's 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 really rewarding to see people that um leave your you know 
you know, Mark Llewellyn's a good example. Mark was a rising star and, you know, we just weren't going to keep Mark forever. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, uh, but it's really rewarding to see people go on, you know, uh, to, you know, um, more challenging responsibilities and have the kinds of career successes and so forth. So there's, you know, there's, that's an intangible thing that you just, uh, you know, there's that you can't put a price tag on it. So it's, it's a lot of fun to see it. Um, I will share quickly that uh, while you acknowledge some of the challenges that you went through at Penn State, um, one of the silver linings, I think, was, um, you know, maybe it was the 2012 or 2013 season. I played football at Brown University, and we were all so proud when Bill O'Brien stepped in and, uh, you know, really um, just, uh, I think, helped get things on a, on a good trajectory. Curious if you cross paths at all. And moreover, just when you think about it, not necessarily at Penn State, but more broadly, the importance of athletics from an affinity perspective and, you know, the, the ways that we can harness athletics engagement to philanthropy, even if the philanthropy isn't around athletics itself. Yeah. Well, you know, there are certain types of institutions where uh, we're, uh, many people kind of get engaged and see the institution uh, through the lens of athletics first, perhaps. Uh, and, uh, and that's a good thing. It's it, uh, if you're really smart about how you do things, you build relationships around people's interest in athletics and, and intercollegiate athletics and sports programs and so forth. Uh, so, so there is some advantage there that some institutions have that, I mean, blend very nicely with, uh, with advancement work. Um, and, uh, you know, by the way, just a side point about Bill O'Brien, I did work with Bill. Uh, so, I mean, Bill was a man of high character integrity. I was really so sad when, when, when Bill left. Bill always wanted to be uh, uh, an NFL head coach. And so he left to go to the Houston Texans to, to, to kind of uh, fulfill his dream. Um, but he was the, the perfect uh, guy for the time uh, that we were in at that, at, at that point. But, but, um, but getting back to the, the, the um, uh, we did so much work around uh, different, you know, particularly football weekends at a place like Penn State, but uh, other kinds of sports as well. Uh, and it was a rallying point for, for people, but it brought people to campus. And one of the things that I think you, if you're working in, in a university or a college, if you can get people on campus to resurrect all those great memories that they had uh, when they were there as a student, you know, maybe they met their, their, their husband or their wife there and so forth. And uh, that emotion is such an important piece of giving. And resurrecting some of those emotions and, and some of the feelings that people had about how important this place was at that point, that turning point. So traditional students, certainly from that 18 to 22 year old period, uh, you know, we really, many of us grew up then, so to speak. And, and that's a, a real turning point for people. So, so what athletics does uh, is really brings people back to campus. And then once you have them there, uh, you can do a lot of things with them. You can get them in the classroom. You can get them to talk to student groups. You could get them uh, in seminars with honor students. You can do, uh, you, know, you can have your volunteer meetings and so forth. And so, so, um, so that's an ancillary benefit that I think athletics really has as it relates to generally fundraising yeah. for anything. Uh, you know, I'll say, Rod, um, 
while that has historically been the case, I do think that is one of the opportunities we have coming out of the pandemic period, which is historically we needed people to come to campus to get that engagement, to have that conversation. Just with the Brown Football Association, for example, having a whole, gen you know, all generations of our alumni now knowing what Zoom is and how to use it, we've yeah. started having record attendance in board meetings from alumni from all over the country who are 80 years old, 90 years old, who never would have come to those meetings in Providence. And, and, and so I think part of the opportunity around technology now is how do we create that, that how do we bring that campus experience and push it more broadly now that we're all a Zoom link away? And it can't just be we do a Zoom conversation all the time. But I do think that kind of emotional connection that historically you needed to be in the stadium to get, it's more possible to deliver at least some of that digitally in a way that we couldn't do even before the pandemic. Oh, you, you make such an important point. And we're able to deliver academic content that's very interesting from, you know, oh, so many of our institutions have amazing faculty. And so, so the reach that they now have uh, is 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 tremendous through this kind of technology that we're using right now. So I, I think it's a really important. I, I I think the nature of our work has changed probably uh, for 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 good in some respects, and I think that's good. And we'll adapt what things we can do well by use of technology like Zoom, and we'll continue to do things where we think we want to bring people together, you know, in person. Um, but it's a very very good point you just made. Rod, can I ask, um, as you've spent the last several years and in, in, in recognizing there was sort of the pre-pandemic period, the pandemic period, and now whatever period we're in, um, what has the consulting experience been like? Um, is that something you always knew you were going to pursue, or um, how did it come about? Obviously, GGNA has an amazing reputation, incredible relationships. Um, just what are some of the highlights for folks who are listening and maybe thinking, hey, maybe someday I'd like yeah. to do that? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I had done a little bit of it along the way uh, before I, I left Penn State, but uh, but I, I still felt I had a little bit of gas in the tank left when I left Penn State. And it was, you know, 21 years in that chair as a vice president was probably, you know, maybe longer than, than uh, you know, uh, it probably should have been in some respects. But I was, I was ready to go on and tackle some other things. And so, so the consulting work interested me. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I, uh, I've gotten progressively busier, maybe on the shade of getting a little too busy. Uh, you know, I tell people I'm failing retirement with a capital F. Uh, but, but it's, it has changed. So I joined the, the GGNA five plus years ago and we were doing a lot of our work, uh, obviously on campuses in person, uh, so much of that now during the pandemic switched to, to doing things remotely. I would say a couple things. Uh, first of all, um, you know, there is still nothing quite like being there and, and, uh, you know, to, to get the real sense of, of a room or of a person and so forth. Um, uh, you know, Zoom will never substitute for that. But we're able to, to do a lot of, particularly the one-on-one -on -one work that we do, for example, if we're doing uh, program reviews or we're interviewing people one-on-one -on -one or we're doing feasibility studies or we're interviewing people one-on-one, -on -one, this technology that we're using right now is, is absolutely, I think it's almost better in some respects than being in person. Uh, you, you, we seem to get more undivided attention from somebody and so, and so forth. 
Uh, it's very still very difficult. Uh, not a fan of trying to deliver educational content and do uh, training or seminars. Or I was uh, last week. I was talking to a board of trustees, and fortunately, it was in person. Um, I visit with the same group remotely. It's just not the same as being able to walk around a room. So, um, but I think uh, there are efficiencies and economies here that uh, institutions are, you know, uh, are, are seeing uh, where they say, well, we don't really need you on campus for this. You could do this remotely. So, so it gives us, I think, actually an, an option or options that we didn't have before. Uh, and it works well for some things, but not, not as well for others. I think this will change. I mean, I I will not be taking nearly as many airplane rides. I think uh, in the next few years as I did, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, and uh, and still probably hopefully deliver the same level of value to clients that we've had in the past. So GGNA really, I was you know I did I don't have any management responsibilities there, but we really pivoted very quickly. Uh, to delivering content, we did you know we we, we did seminars uh, like like this. We did blogs and so forth, you know, uh, and so podcasts. So we pivoted quickly, and I think we delivered some good content, and we helped uh, you know other institutions do it as well. So Rod, can I ask you to put a number on it? Do you end up traveling twenty um, percent of what you used to, fifty percent of what you used to? Where do you think it lands? Uh, you know, if I think now what the future holds uh, compared to where I was, um, I probably maybe 30 or 40 percent less, I'm guessing. Um, is that is that what you think the future holds for principal gift officers too? 30 to 40 percent less than pre-pandemic? You know, what's really difficult that we've we've learned and I think all institutions have is is developing that early relationship still is really kind of difficult on Zoom. Uh, I think um, gift officers are still haven't quite mastered that, are, are kind of reluctant to do cold calls on Zoom and so forth. Once you've gotten to know somebody, you can have a relationship. I mean, there are large, there are seven and eight figure gifts now being closed, obviously, uh, where you're not uh, in, in person uh, with, with, uh, uh, with the, the, you know, the donor. So, uh, so I think, but that early start, Know, that building that trust that we talked about a few minutes ago uh, is so much better done in person. But thereafter, um, there's a lot of ways you know, where you can, if you're going to have a donor meeting with uh, a financial or a legal advisor for a donor, doing that on Zoom, we've done some of that. I mean, that, that works pretty well, actually, uh, you know, and so. Um, Rod, we had asked uh, in advance if you wanted to give any shout outs here on the podcast You'd reference maybe some of the folks down at the University of Houston. Tell me more about why you feel that way, and then we'll tie things up here at the end. Oh uh, well, that that to me that's a, that's kind of a great story. So um, so the University of Houston had not had a campaign in 25 years. Uh, my good friend and colleague uh, Eloise Bryce became vice president there now, almost a decade ago, uh, and they they uh, they launched a, a billion dollar campaign probably had no real, um, you know, <laughs> no real business trying to raise that kind of money. Uh, but uh, they exceeded their goal in the same time frame that they had projected uh, to do so, that uh, they were flying a jumbo jet and building it at the same time, uh, still with not a lot of strength around their infrastructure and so forth. And, and one of the most efficient programs actually that I've been around, I mean, in terms of dollars raised versus dollars spent, 
so, uh, but you know, again, that's leadership. Uh, always is a strong leader, and and uh, and she's a great principal gift officer. And so she she really she is um, she really demonstrated the importance of a vice president to carry a principal gift portfolio. Um, so so that that's that's a fun story uh, to, to for 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 me to have worked with them for a while and, and and see the success that they've had. But there are so many people that you know I I, I have to I mean uh, Dave Lieb is somebody who I've worked with for a long time. Dave's the senior associate VP at Penn State, and Dave was um, uh, Dave is uh, was so important to both of the campaigns that I was involved with at Penn State. Just really solid fundamental uh, knowledge uh, and really committed to the institution. So, uh, re re really uh, uh, somebody who I admire. Um, but there's there's countless of uh, uh, other individuals you know that I work with. That I, to to name a lot of them, uh, I, I'd get myself in a whole lot of trouble. You know, to, it's so. all good. It's all good, Rod. I just can't thank you enough for uh, you know for us. I mean, you said it, it is hard to build a relationship. Uh, over Zoom, this is our first time really properly uh, chatting, and uh, wouldn't have happened without Mark uh, Llewellyn's, uh, you know, kind of mentioning. And I'm, I appreciate your willingness to jump on here, and for uh, you know providing your perspective on on 40 plus years in a sector that has, on one hand, changed a lot, and I think part of what I take away from what you said is uh, is also hasn't changed that much. It's still about the basics. It's still about good stewardship. It's still about the persistence. Whether you're sending letters out on a typewriter to try to get a response or doing it through, you know, texting or video today, it's got to be the right message delivered the right way uh, in a manner that resonates. And then you got to, you know, you got to keep working at it even when you get uh, hung up on. And I think a lot of that um, is going to stand the test of time for sure. Yep, absolutely. Well, it's, it's been fun to get to know you uh, and uh Hopefully, you know, there'll be a couple nuggets here that, that people can take away. And uh... Well, we've been thinking about throwing a party for all of our guests, maybe a toga party. <laughs> and if that happens, uh, I'm going to reach out to you for help on planning, all right? I, I, I will. I, I, uh, my, my rules of toga parties are a little bit rusty, but uh, ha ha happy to help. All right, Rod. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your journey. With that, okay. Okay. Brent, uh, signing off Race Community with Rod Kirsch, the Senior Vice President at Grenzebach Lear & Associates and the Senior Vice President Emeritus of Development and Alumni Relations at Penn State University. Take care.